Welcome to worship. We're so glad you're here with us today. My name is Sheila and I'll be your host for this online worship experience. If this is your first time worshiping with us, we wanna give you a very special welcome. If you'll check in with us and provide your name and an email address, this coming week, we will send you a gift card and the coffee or the iced tea is on us. This is week 12 of our sermon series about David. Pastor Spencer has a great message just ahead for us. And speaking of the sermon, you'll find sermon discussion questions and more online at schweitzer.church next. And now, here's Corey with our announcements. Hello, welcome to Schweitzer Church. I'm Corey Lucivo, Director of Connections. Get ready because this Thursday, August 17th from 5 to 7.30 p.m., we're hosting our third annual Last Blast of Summer event. And this will be the biggest one yet with food, bounce houses, a car show, and so much more. This is an outreach event for families and kids of all ages in our church and in our community. So bring your friends and family for this amazing evening. This is a huge event, so we're still looking for a few more volunteers, and there's still a couple spots available in our car show. You can sign up for either one at schweitzer.church summer or at the Blue Booth today. We are gearing up for our fall semester and we have several new groups and classes starting up. Many of these will begin on Wednesday evening, September 6th, including our kids and student ministries. To make midweek easier for your family, I am excited to share that we will be providing a dinner option. Each week you can pre-register for a Chick-fil-A meal for just $5 that will be available from 5.15 to 6.15 p.m. in Memorial Hall. We hope this will make it even easier for your family to get connected with a new small group or midweek opportunity. Sign up and learn more at schweitzer.church groups. Thank you so much for helping fill backpacks for Pittman Elementary. Because of your generosity, we'll be sharing these out with over 200 students at the school over the next couple of weeks. If you've bought supplies and haven't brought them in yet, tomorrow is the last day to bring them by the office. One last thing. If you're new to Schweitzer and want to know more about our church, we'd love to spend some extra time with you. A great way to do this is by attending our Next Steps lunch in two weeks on Sunday, August 27th. We'll provide you with a free lunch following the second service, and you can meet our pastors and learn more about who we are here at Schweitzer. You can sign up online or at the Blue Booth in the Fellowship Center. Once again, we are so glad you're here. Now, let's continue in worship. Thanks, Corey, for the great announcements. I want to remind you that if you'd like to join us for any or all of these great things that are happening at Schweitzer, you can find more information online at schweitzer.church next. If you're worshiping with us live today, we invite you to join in the chat. Say hello to your friends or give us your insights. And if you find yourself in need of prayer, we have someone waiting for you right now in our prayer room. Just press that prayer button and we'll be right with you. And now, let's continue in worship.
love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all knowing, he counts not their song. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, his mercy
As we come to this time of prayer, I invite you to join me as we pray to our Heavenly Father. Holy God, we wanna thank you and praise you just for this day. What a glorious blessing each new day is to us as we have a chance to do better, to do more, to, to care for others, to reach out to people in your name. We wanna thank you for, for being there for us in every situation, God. And especially when we have times of trial, we know that you are there. You are here for us in every setting and we praise you for that. God, we lift up those to you that are ill, those that are hurting. We lift up those that are lonely and those who are facing circumstances that are beyond their control. We pray for your protection, for your shield to come upon them, for them to feel your presence with them every minute. And God, as we continue in our prayer today, we wanna to pray that prayer that your son taught us, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we come to this time of offering, it's my joy to share with you about a great event that happened recently as part of Schweitzer's Ministries. We had a great river baptism at the Finley River Park in Ozark, and we've got a video to show you that was produced by one of our very own volunteers, Jeff Settle. God, we thank you so much for this glorious day, for a chance just to celebrate the gift of baptism. My name is Spencer, and um, I'm really glad that we can share this time together. So I want to read to you Romans 6. I always read Romans 6 when we do baptisms, and Romans 6 says this, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So baptism is about new life. This is what we celebrate. We celebrate that in Christ, we go in, uh, we, in ourselves, we go down into the water, into the grave, and in Christ, we come up as new creation, resurrected and experiencing what it is that he has for us. And it's a, a taste of, of, of heavenly resurrection that we have in Christ as well. And so today, as we um, celebrate these baptisms, you may not be being baptized, you may be hot and sweaty and watching this, but also be reminded that at one time you two were here and that your baptism is also a marker of God's grace in your life just as much as it is for these folks today. So um, this is a celebration where we all are reminded that before we did anything, Christ died for us. So let's pray together. Uh, Father, today, I just give you thanks that we can celebrate this um, marker in these people's lives of, uh, of grace and mercy that comes from you. As we gather at the river here and we remember what Jesus himself did as he was baptized. And so today as we hear these words um, that we are baptized in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, may we all be reminded of the grace of God that is available for us that we can have life in him. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
Thanks to Jeff for putting together such a great video. We had a wonderful time at the river baptisms that day. 15 people were baptized in the river and we shared a great time of fellowship, food, ice cream. It was a great time. This event and so many more happened because of your generosity. I want to thank you for supporting ministries through Schweitzer. I want to remind you that you can give online at schweitzer.church give. Thanks so much for your help. And now, here's Pastor Spencer with week 13 of our sermon series, David, A Man After God's Own Heart. Friends, welcome today. I'm so glad that you're here with us. My name is Spencer, and we are continuing today on our series on David. All summer long, we have been studying the life of King David. And as we near the end here, we're going to end on Labor Day weekend, uh, we are starting to see the end of David's life, the end of his reign. And as we're, we're going through these last few weeks, I just kind of want to give you a heads up of how this is going to go. We're going to see some of some unraveling start to take place in David's life. It really started last week. It's going to continue this week next week and the next, as we see this kind of unraveling in the later stages of his leadership and his life. Now today, uh, be warned, we are going to cover a lot of ground. We are going to cover 2 Samuel 13, 14, 15, 16, and some of 17. That's five chapters we're going to cover. And at the end of it, we're not even going to have resolution. We're going to end on a bit of a cliffhanger as we walk through the story. Now, also, you need to be warned as we're starting to see this unraveling that some of the things that we're going to talk about today and we're going to read from the Bible are really dark. They're disturbing. They're uncomfortable. This is not like a feel-good kind of message we have today as we're going to walk through um, these, these chapters and see this part of David's life. And so, uh, you know, sometimes you come to church wanting to feel good. So welcome to church today. That's not this at all. We're going to walk through some really uncomfortable, more grown-up kinds of things as we talk through um, this part of David's life. So we need to jump into this because we're covering so much ground. Second Samuel 13, starting in verse 1, here's how it starts. It says, in the course of time, in the course of time, we don't know how long this is, but um, what the author is trying to tell us is in the course of time since what we talked about last week, which was 2 Samuel 11 and 12. That was the story of David and Bathsheba, which ended up with the murder of Uriah, her husband, a really terrible, terrible thing that took place. And so what the author is trying to connect here is those things just happened. It's the last thing. If you're reading through the Bible, you'd have just read those things and it leads right into this. So there's a connection here that uh, 2 Samuel's wanting us to see. So in the course of time, we don't know how long it's been, but 
be thinking about those last uh, couple chapters. Amnon, son of David, that is the oldest son of David, the crown prince, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, the son of David. Now, if you're tracking that family tree at home, that would make Tamar the half-sister of Absalom. And if you think that's disturbing, well, don't worry, it gets worse, a lot worse. Um, Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimeus, David's brother. And then listen to this. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. Now, that word shrewd could also be translated into the Hebrew as uh, crafty. Can you think of anything else in the Bible that's called crafty? Well, you might think, for instance, of the snake, Satan, in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 opens and says the Lord God, uh, or the, the snake was more crafty than all the things that the Lord God had, had created. And of course, the snake unleashes all of this evil into this world through the original sin of Adam and Eve. And, and uh, the way that the snake unleashes this evil into the world is through deception. And so here we have uh, this crafty, this shrewd advisor to Amnon. And he comes up with a crafty, shrewd, deceitful plan that is going to unleash all kinds of evil into David's family and hurt people. The plan is very simple. It's this. Amnon is going to pretend to be ill. And in his sickness, his father David will come to visit him. And when he comes to visit, he's going to say that the only person who should care for him in this time is his sister Tamar. And so David buys into the deception and he sends Tamar in to care for her brother. And uh, finally, when Amnon has uh, Tamar all alone, he propositions her and she clearly says no to her brother. This is how the Bible says it. This is uh, verse 12. No, my brother, she said to him. Listen, it's very clear. No, my brother, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. But then we read verse 14. So, so sad. It reads this. Since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Now, this happened 3,000 years ago, but doesn't this sound like this could happen today? I mean, it's been pretty widely reported that one in six American women will experience some sort of assault like this. And I know that in our church, with as many people as we have on a Sunday, that there will be lots of people, lots of women here who will have experienced this and read the story of Tamar and can't help but think of their own story. And maybe like Tamar, for many women, this happens at the hands of a relative and like Tamar, for many women, they're pressured into silence and they don't receive justice, just like Tamar. Because here's David's response to this evil, evil thing that has happened in his family. Verse 21, when King David heard all this, he was furious, as he should be. He should be furious. But that's it. That's all we read. That's all he's going to do is he just, he gets, he gets mad. And so it makes me wonder, well, where is his leadership? I mean, as we've seen in this series, David has been an incredible leader. He, he's, he's had, he's been decisive and he's rallied people around him. He's been this incredible leader. But now when it comes to his own family, all he does is he, he gets mad. Like where, where is his leadership? And his lack of leadership of sweeping this under the rug is only going to make things worse because listen, Family dysfunction, family sin never gets solved by, by pretending it doesn't exist. 
And so David's lack of leadership leads to this. This is the next verse, verse 22. Now, and Absalom, that is Tamar's full brother, never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. The next verse starts like this. Two years later. Two years of brooding and hatred and estrangement between these brothers. Two years. And just like Amnon devised a plan to rape Tamar, Absalom devises a plan to deceive everyone in order to kill his brother. And the plan, we're not going to read it for the sake of time, but um, as it unfolds, essentially deceives David and everyone else. And it ends with Absalom's men killing his brother, Amnon. So as I tell the story, you know, the big question for me is where is King David in all of this? Why, why does he um, let this happen? And where is his leadership? And there, there are theories out there about where is David? And why is he not leading in this time? One theory is simply this, that um, David's lack of leadership is here because he's simply repeating what he saw in his own family growing up as a boy. There's evidence in, in the first few chapters of um, David's story, 1 Samuel 16 and 17, that there's friction between David and his brothers, and his father Jesse seems to be absent from that, or perhaps the Bible's just silent, but there's a theory there that maybe that he's just repeating what he's seen in his own family. And I, I mean, that's certainly a theory, speculation. I think it could hold water. But I think a much more likely theory is that the reason why David is so silent here and, and not um, having any leadership is because of his own personal shame. I mean, David just had one son who raped a woman, his sister, and another son who killed the rapist, who was his own brother. As you think about that, uh, you the sexual sin and this violent murder, you have to wonder, does that sound familiar at all? Well, it should, because it's what we read last week. David himself had a sexual relationship. He coerced Bathsheba into a relationship with him. And the result of that was he murdered then her husband Uriah to cover it up. It's sexual sin to murder. It's the same kinds of behavior that's now visiting the next uh, generation. So I, I, I don't know if that's why David is silent in his own personal shame. I mean, that's speculation, but certainly that theory holds water. Now, at the very least, what we see happening here is that, the, is that the sins of the father are being repeated now in the sins of the sons. And there's this dynamic with um, sin that we don't talk about very often, but we should lift up because we see it right here. I mean, there are these places in the Bible where sin is talked about not just as an individual problem we have, but as a generational problem that we have. So you see different places, especially in the Old Testament, where sometimes the Old Testament will talk about how sin is being visited onto the next generation, down to third or fourth generation. It's kind of how it talks, going down through the generations. And, and for us, that's a strange idea. We kind of, I think, probably push back on that a little bit for at least two reasons. One reason is we stand on this side of the resurrection. And so we know that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that uh, that that sin and the power of sin can be overcome in someone's life because of the power of the gospel. But I think we also push back on that idea of generational sin because we can't, as people who live in late modernity, we, we can't help but, but lift up the individual. <clears throat> and so this thought that someone else's dysfunctions or problems or pathologies or sin might also be visited upon me and I'm just repeating these kinds of things is a really uncomfortable thought for someone who lives in 
in late modernity because of this way that we, we highlight the individual. So however strange it might feel to talk about generational sin, we should also know that even secular psychologists talk about this kind of thing. They recognize this. There's a, a psychological theory out there called um, family systems theory. And the idea of family systems theory is really simple. You and I exist as part of relational networks or systems. And we, we all are interacting with others and we're reacting to them and adapting to them all along. And, and how we do this impacts us and our own problems and our own psyche and how our own minds and brains work. And we're always responding to this. And it's an interesting, really fascinating theory about human relationships. A great, great resource about this kind of thinking is a book called Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman. <clears throat> this is the best leadership book I have ever read. I, I recommend it to leaders all the time. Um, I, I, our church staff just read it read, uh, through it this last year as we worked our way through some leadership principles, but it's an incredible book. And the, and the basic premise is this. In every relational system that you're a part of, whether it's a family, a business, uh, a church, a school, whatever it might be, there is always a temptation to give in to the most anxious people who are in the room. And so because of this, this, this temptation that's always there to give in to the most anxious people in the room, um, dysfunction is allowed to thrive because no one wants to deal with it. And so Friedman, in his, his way of putting this, just talks about how dysfunction in a family or a church or a, a school or a business causes a sort of chronic pain that we all feel. And, and if you've been part of these kinds of things, you, you, you could know it. I can give you a ton of examples of this kind of chronic pain um, that, that we deal with. So the chronic pain might be something like, you know, it's the marriage that just limps along year after year after year instead of dealing with the things that the couple needs to deal with. They just, they just kind of tolerate the dysfunction in their marriage. It's a kind of chronic pain that we live with. Or the chronic pain might be, maybe there's someone in your life, uh, you work with, maybe someone in the, in your family who just has a terrible temper. And you never know what's going to set them off. And so you always feel like you're on eggshells around them. And so you just kind of live with this chronic pain of, of, of knowing that there's just always could be an explosion. Or maybe it's the, the chronic pain of someone who has an addiction and they don't want to deal with the addiction. And we all just kind of pretend that the addiction isn't really there or it isn't really a problem. But Friedman would say in this kind of thinking, this family systems thinking is that the, the only way to deal with this is that you have to face acute pain. So to overcome the chronic pain, you have to have acute pain. And the acute pain is, is harder to deal with than the chronic pain. It is easier to keep limping along in the marriage than it is to face facts and to deal with the problems that are actually there, the dysfunctions that are actually there. And so instead, we just keep tolerating the same dysfunctions year after year after year. And the really fascinating thing that shows up with research backing this is that some of these dysfunctions that we just tolerate in ourselves are actually things that have been repeated in the generations, either before us or maybe after us. It's the same dysfunctions that keep showing up. And of, and of course, we've all seen this with certain things like maybe addictions or abuse. You see these kinds of dysfunctions show up um, in the next generation. But it's true for other things too. It's true for things like divorce or um, debt it's true for uh, obesity. It's true for uh, family estrangements. It's true for infidelity. Like there are these, these other kinds of pathologies 
problems, dysfunctions, or we might call it sin, that seems to be uh, passed on through the generations. And, and what it takes is we need leadership, whether in our own life or someone else, to step in, to have the nerve, the backbone, to confront these kinds of things and to go through the acute pain to find healing um, on the other side. David does not have the nerve. He does not have the backbone. There's no leadership. There's no accountability. There's no responsibility that he's pushing here. He is simply letting things play out. And they play out in this generation very similar to how they played out in his own. Because family dysfunction, family pathology, family uh, sin doesn't just solve itself. It gets worse. And so we keep reading here. Um, Absalom and David they don't speak for five years. That's essentially all of 2 Samuel chapter 14. And that brings us to 2 Samuel 15, where um, this estrangement between Absalom and David, it leads to open rebellion, civil war. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, in the course of time, again, we don't know how long, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses with 50 men to run ahead of him. He's acting like the king. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? And he would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, and then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And then listen to this line. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Now that sounds like he created fondness for the people of Israel, but, but in the Old Testament Hebrew, the heart was not where emotions are housed, but where the intellect is housed. And so a better translation of this would say, um, to say that Absalom um, stole their minds. In other words, Absalom deceived them. He duped them. He conned them. And this eventually led to open rebellion, the civil war in Israel. David is forced to flee Jerusalem, his own capital, the one that he established because his son has rebelled against him. Come to chapter 15, verse 13. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And then David said to all his officials who were with him, in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or we will or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's official answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. What a, what a shameful thing that's happening here. David has to flee Jerusalem. We come to chapter 16, one, David, one of David's old rivals shows back up just to throw a little salt in the wound. And so verse five says, as King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out there, right? Saul's family is back. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. And as he cursed, Shimei said, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you were a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he's cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask? Why do you do this? 
David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went, throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. Now, as you move into chapter 17, it's just more of the same. But we're going to end our story here. That's, that's the cliffhanger. We're going to stop here. It's been civil war, uh, rebellion. You know, who's going to win, David or Absalom? We'll come back next week. We'll, we'll, we'll finish this off. But if you've been with us over the summer, um, we've seen David deal with a lot of adversity. I, I think about we spent how we spent five weeks talking about David's problems with King Saul, how Saul used to throw spears at him when David was playing music for him, or, or how da- uh, Saul hunted him and never trusted after him, how David had to hide in caves, how he, David had to pretend to be insane just to uh, allow himself just a, a chance to escape. And, and everything he's gone through, some very difficult things that he's gone through in his life, we come to this, and this is by far the worst thing that David has faced. And honestly, a lot of it is is his fault. I mean, I wanted to read these two stories together of um, the Civil War and this family's sin because these two things are very closely related and they both come from David's lack of leadership. He has allowed sin to grow and to take hold in his family and it led to war. Now, one of the great things, of course, about studying David is that not only do you have his life events, you also have his prayer journal, the longest book of the Bible, the Psalms. And there is a specific Psalm that David wrote about this experience. It's Psalm 3. Let's go read it. It's only eight verses, but here's how it starts. This is the description that's in your Bibles. It starts off with this, a Psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. Verse 1. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? A more literal translation from the Hebrew, rise up against me, would be more like, how many tighten around me? You think of the image here as of a snake as it tightens around its prey. And if you've ever been in trouble, that metaphor makes a ton of sense. Because that's how we talk when we get in trouble. We say things like, man, the walls are closing in around me. Or I find myself between a rock and a hard place. Or, or um, like, I just, you know, my back is against the wall. And so this is what the Hebrew uh, literally means, is my foes are tightening around me. And this leads to verse 2. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. The word deliver could also be the word, translated as the word save. And what that word literally means is that uh, in God's salvation, that God makes space for us. So if in our troubles... Um, are like walls coming around us. Salvation in the Old Testament is like God is, is freeing us. The Lord is, is freeing us from the threat by bringing us into a spacious place where we have room to move and to breathe and to live. Verse three, <clears throat> but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. This is the second time we've read that word, deliver. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Verse 8, 
From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Now notice in the last line there, uh, this is the third time in eight verses we read that word, uh, deliverance. Now the word in Hebrew is pretty interesting because it's, it's, it forms the root word for um, several key names of key people in the Old Testament. So, so it's so significant that there are a lot of Old Testament characters who are named after this word for deliverance or save. So you have people like Isaiah and Hosea. You can hear how those names are related. Those are both coming from this Hebrew word for uh, deliverance or salvation. But really the most famous example of this in the Old Testament is the word, the name Joshua. Joshua. Now Joshua is the English way of saying this Hebrew word, which the Hebrew word is Yeshua. Yeshua means the Lord saves. It means the Lord delivers. And of course, the Greek way of saying this Hebrew name Yeshua is what? It is Jesus. So as we read about this deliverance, this salvation that the Lord brings, the word there is Yeshua. I love this. As we think about this prayer for deliverance, this is a prayer about and for and to Jesus because Jesus is our salvation. And I know that you know that. I know that you know that Jesus is our salvation. But I, I lift up this point because when we read through the events of 2 Samuel 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, honestly, it is hard to find sympathy for David, isn't it? I find it's hard to find sympathy for David because so much of this is his own fault. He failed to lead. He failed to provide justice. He allowed Absalom uh, to pursue vengeance. And I, so I read this and I, I can't help but think, David, I mean, come on. Sometimes you reap what you sow. Sometimes, yeah, your back is against the wall, but it's what you caused. Yeah, yeah your enemies are closing around you. Yeah, you're being uh, forced to shamefully leave Jerusalem. And now that you're in trouble, David, now that's when you turn to the Lord and pray for deliverance. Like, like let's be honest. Let's be honest. It's easy uh, to judge David and be like, why should the Lord deliver you? Because look at all that you've caused. Look at all the people that you've hurt. Look at the hole that you dug for yourself. This is on you, David. It's not just on David that we think these kinds of things. I mean, we tend to think about this, these kinds of things about lots of people. We all know people who find themselves suffering because of their own choices, their own sin. We all know people like this. We all know people, some of them might be in our own families, who make terrible decisions and then they suffer because of those decisions. And as the bystander of it, you can't help but think to yourself, I mean, I saw it coming. You reap what you sow. You made these choices. You're suffering because, you know, you didn't want to deal with your addiction. Or, oh, here's another relationship that's crumbling because you just have this long line of, of, of relationships that have fallen apart. Or, or, or maybe, you know, you're jumping from job to job to job and it's always someone else's fault. Or, or maybe, you know, there's a new drama or new financial crisis always seems to be hitting them. And so you, you have these people in your life or maybe this is you and you can't help but think, oh my gosh, yeah, it's happening again because it's your fault. You keep making the same decisions over and over again. You feel sad for them, of course, but it's like, it's like, when are you going to learn? 
Or maybe this is yourself and you just keep thinking, when am I going to learn? When am I going to overcome this? I just can't get anything right. So I, I, I come back to that line, the last line of Psalm 3, verse 8. From the Lord comes deliverance or comes salvation. From the Lord comes Yeshua. I love that that line was not written by a man who had his life together. That line was not written by a man who deserves to be rescued. This is written by a man who's dug himself a hole, has caused harm to other people, and the, and the consequences are closing in around him. This is written by a man who's at the end of his rope because of his own choices. And, and if it's true, that from the Lord comes deliverance, comes salvation, comes Yeshua, then that means that deliverance doesn't come from us because we deserve it, because we've uh, earned it, because we've made God proud or anything like that. I mean, in the church, this is what we mean when we talk about grace. That in our brokenness, in the holes that we've dug, in the ways that maybe we even judge other people or we should judge ourselves, the choices we've made, here is this truth I want to remind you of. It's from the Lord that comes deliverance. It's from the Lord that comes salvation. It's from the Lord that comes Yeshua, even and especially in our weaknesses, our problems, our dysfunctions, our pathologies, and our sin. It's even in those moments where we really don't deserve it, and when the walls are closing down around us, that we can call out to him and he will come to save us. Let's pray. And so Father, today as we work our way through this uh, really troubling, difficult passage, these hard things with David, where honestly we see David and it's hard to be sympathetic for him, we're also reminded that your grace is for exactly these kinds of moments not when our lives are together, not when we deserve you, not when we've made you proud, not when we're at our best, but really when we're at our worst and the walls are closing in around us, you are still for us. You are still with us and you have still given us your deliverance, your salvation, your son, Jesus. And so for anyone who's with us today, who, who's going through maybe a moment in time where the walls are closing in around you, you feel like you're between a rock and a hard place, the, 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 uh, there's not much hope. Maybe, maybe there's choices that you've made that have caused your own pain, your own problems. We just want to offer up a prayer of deliverance. Lord, would you come and save? Would you come and deliver? Would you free us from our sin and, and allow us to have a new kind of life as we follow you? And this is not a prayer just for unbelievers. It's a prayer for Christians who find themselves caught up in, in some of this kind of sin that just keeps revisiting their families keeps revisiting their own lives. Lord, would you come and bring salvation? And we can put our lives in you and our trust in you to deliver us, for us to face the facts and to come clean and to offer confession and repentance because we know that you love us, that you have given your son for us, that in our weakness, in our sinfulness, in our dysfunctions, that you have come for us so that we can trust you. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray today and we put our trust in that we say, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today for worship. I wanna thank the team that made this possible and especially Pastor Spencer for his powerful message. 
If you know someone who would benefit from hearing this message, we invite you to like and share it on social media. Thank you so much for doing that. And now we invite you back next week for week 13 of our sermon series about David. I pray that God blesses you this week and you have a wonderful week. Cause I know